Right, this is Alex with a quick message, just to explain really that the reason the frequency of these episodes has slowed down a bit of late is that, um, well, I've been struggling with a long COVID illness. It's a post-viral headache syndrome, which is limiting how much time I can spend on the screen. Uh, At the moment, I'm doing one minute every 30 minutes, for example, but hopefully that will get better. Maybe I'll once again reach the heady heights of three minutes in every 15 that allowed me to produce most of the recent episodes of this podcast anyway at the moment even uploading an episode can take several hours but um, i have already recorded most of the interviews for 1798 so there is some room for hope and i mean obviously i hope hope this will get better anyhow but it may be in the meantime that the podcast does end up going on a hiatus of sorts perhaps for the rest of 2022 we'll see not really sure yet what's realistic um, but please do bear with me i'm desperate to get back to work anyhow in the meantime uh, i hope you enjoy this latest batch of three interview episodes and um, i'll be back with 1798 and 1799 as we say in due course Hello, everyone who's fascinated by the 1792 to 1815 period eventually ends up forming their own view of Bonaparte. There's any number of verdicts you can conclude about Napoleon, but how you form those views depends on which books you read, of course, uh, and even just possibly which podcasts you listen to. Some are interested in the battles, focusing on the gossip of the court, perhaps, but to really get under the skin of a man like Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, to really understand the motivations behind the decisions that he made throughout his whole career, those decisions that shaped the grand strategy of the age, as well as uh, decisions that were influenced by and probably shaped the personal relationships, which were playing such an important role, of course. Anyhow, understanding all of that can, can never really be achieved perfectly and that is why there's so much scope for so many people to have a go at giving it a crack uh, there's so many books by napoleon about napoleon that's that's true um but um this means it's very tricky to come up with a properly original take on the man however this is why the originality of the approach taken by the historian uh, who Simon Sharma has called the most gifted non-fiction writer alive is so striking. It's my interviewee for today's uh, interview, Ruth Skur. She's a writer, historian and literary critic. She teaches history and politics at Cambridge University and her book, Napoleon, A Life in Gardens and Shadows examines his life through his love of nature and the gardens that gave um, his revolutionary life its light and shade. I was very lucky to have Ruth come on the podcast to talk about French politics. We we talked through Froctidor in 1797. And in the interview you're about to hear, 
Um, we're talking about Bonaparte from roughly halfway through, but we began the conversation by looking at her first two books. Napoleon was the third, you see. So her first was on uh, Maximilian Robespierre. It's called Fatal Purity. Robespierre, a very great interest to this podcast, of course, in 1792, 93, 94, um, seasons one and two. We also then briefly touch on her second biography, which was her study of John Aubrey. He was a 17th century antiquarian, a sort of early archaeologist, who, among other things, invented modern biography. Well, Ruth Scare might just be seeking to reinvent biography itself, um, which she describes as a form of portrait painting in words. Of course, that's where I began our discussion by asking her what on earth she meant by that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I was thinking about this uh, recently because I've just been on a conference about Voltaire um, and the Age of Liberty. And I didn't realise um, before I put that on my website that Voltaire strongly believed um, it was impossible to do a portrait in words. Um, you could do a visual portrait of someone um, because that was static. But if you tried, if he thought that if he tried to look inside himself, um, there was nothing stable. So you couldn't do a portrait in words as far as he was concerned. So obviously I'm asserting that um, my whole biographical practice is, is refuting this. It, it, it is possible. And um, by it, what I mean is that you can um, construct uh, pictures of a person and how they um, relate to other people in their time, how they move through their times, and that it's about showing that person rather than casting judgment on them or fitting them into a kind of for or against schema. So with both my uh, books about the the revolution, uh, the Robespierre and, and, and the Napoleon one, they are two highly divisive figures and there are camps of historians, not just in our time, but in stretching back through through the through the archives, through 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 the libraries, you you have one side or another. And I am very opposed to that. I feel it's um, uh, too polemical, um, that it's distorting, and that there you need a form of writing about someone which allows you to actually show both the positive and the negative, because they are two sides of the truth. They, they, they belong in the same frame. And so if you are trying to paint a, a portrait, especially if you're doing it in words, there is space for that. It's inclusive rather than narrowing it down and saying, I will make the case for or I will make the case against. OK, and looking at both of these men and um, you know you've you as you've mentioned they are divisive figures who are deeply controversial because of their their actions and and but also what they thought and i suppose particularly Robespierre springing to mind there someone who you know what was inside his head and what he thought was going on in other people's heads suddenly emerged as a concept in politics that maybe hadn't been around in quite the same way before so he was someone who himself in that final period was trying to search into other people's souls and try to look at what was there. I think that in that final period and 
arguably earlier in his life, Robespierre was a very abstracted person, that he wasn't actually so interested in looking into other people's souls or understanding even his closest friends, that he was driven by um, a sort of uh, abstract commitment to principles. And that's why I gave the book um, the title Fatal Purity. Um, and he did become nicknamed the incorruptible. Um, you know, people could never forgive him for sending uh, Desmoulins and Danton to, to their deaths, so especially not Desmoulins, whose, whose son he was the godfather of. And there's something um, sort of purely political. Um, I was talking about it with a, a colleague the other day, you know, the kind of person who, um, you know, will light your cigarette before the execution comes for you um, because he actually has commitments that go far beyond individual people. And the contrast case with him was Danton, who, who's a very human person at the end of the day. I mean, you know, he's got all this sort of, um, uh, you know, faults. Um, he'd be the first person to admit it. He's done his best for the revolution. But when he comes to it, he's prepared to stand there and say, you know, I beg forgiveness of, 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 of mankind for having my part in setting up this revolutionary tribunal. You're never going to hear that from Robespierre. Never. Well, how did it change your view of, of the Robespierre, the human being? Did it? I mean, fatal purity, there's something ultimately inhuman, uh, potentially, if you take that to extreme, which I suppose ultimately he did. Yeah, well, I think it changed. I didn't so much change my view of him, but it gave me a model for understanding other kinds of political fanaticism because that's what it that's what it is. It's it's the prioritization of um, a worldview or a set of political commitments over the lives that are actually being caught up and and and, uh, and in a sense a disregard for the sacrifices that you are requiring of of, of those lives so i think um you know, I, I mean, I knew the story before I wrote so it was only going to end one way. Um, but what I am pleased to have done in his case is to have given him the benefit of the doubt. So I had this controversial sentence right at the beginning of the book where I say, you know, I have tried to be his friend, um, but friends, as he always suspected, can be treacherous because they have opportunities for betrayal that enemies only dream of. And that is a very revolutionary question. You know, how do you know your friend from the, the counter-revolutionary? Could it be that the people who present themselves as pro-revolutionary, present themselves as the friend of the Republic, are actually deeply undermining it. So that whole discourse of friendship was very central to, to my approach in the book. And also, you know, that if you come on giving someone the benefit of the doubt and you get to the end of the story and they've disappeared into a mist of blood and, you know, all these people are going under the guillotine, in a sense, that's much stronger than if you start off saying, you know, this was a disgraceful person and I'm going to tell you why. 
Yes, because even at the end, when Robespierre wasn't acting for some reason you know he it was it was one of those moments in the revolution um in the say that i don't know the 24 hours before thermidor when you know you had to act or be acted upon and he just seemed to become lethargic in a way and absolutely i mean uh this year um i hope you'll be inviting him on to the podcast at some point um Colin Jones has published his his book about the 20, the 48 hours of the fall of um of Robespierre and what's striking I mean the title of the book is you know uh I I, I sort of 48 hours in revolutionary Paris and Robespierre's very small in this story you know you've got all the things that are going on in Paris all the things that people thought were going to happen that day you know strikes in in against the the wage maximum being imposed etc economic um things but actually um you know Robespierre, the fall of Robespierre, according to 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 Colin Jones's book, was pretty uh, accidental. You know, it it wasn't planned. Um, it wasn't heavily plotted, and nor was he heavily plotting to set up a dictatorship. Just one of those things that happened on that day. And a sense that, not just in that sort of micro history that. That, that, that 48 hours but in the weeks beforehand he had somehow he was a very human figure at that time strangely that that everything that had driven him until then wasn't stopping him from acting in ways which you sort of look back and you want to sort of shout at the tv screen and say you're not doing what the robespierre in our heads ought to be doing <laughs> You want to say, what have you, what have you got, ill or something? Have you lost your mind? That's some of the thing people say, you know, he's gone completely crazy. He's debilitated by something, you know, something happened uh, possibly between him and Sanchez. You, you know, we just, well, all we know is that he withdrew and quite why he thought that was a strategy um, is, is, is very difficult to reconstruct. And certainly why he thought you could withdraw for, 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 for weeks and then reappear in the convention and make a speech that was going to swing everything in your favour. And, and, and in a sense, it was a completely crazy idea of, of, of his. And yet, you know, his friends supported him. Saint-Just goes with him and, and, and he's, no, you know, nobody's fool. So... After your Robespierre book, you moved on to John Aubrey and then to, most recently, to Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, what were the differences between the Aubrey and Bonaparte books in terms, you know, you'd, you'd got your Robespierre book out of the way. <laughs> so, OK, yeah, no, OK, so not out of the way, but not out of my head. So the issue with uh, my book after um, Robespierre was I could not continue with the terror. I I had gotten so close to it. I still think about it, you know, those those weeks of finishing the book and going through that period. I was so exhausted and in a sense, you know, like France, I, 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 I was traumatised. And so I made the decision to um, to write about someone who in their own country, in a, in a previous century, 17th century, not 18th century, was a post-revolutionary figure. So Aubrey had been a student during the civil wars. He'd seen the destruction. He'd seen all the... Uh, all, all, all the um, 
you know, chaos and uh, pain that the, the Civil War had brought. And he devoted his life to basically treasuring the record, treasuring the remains, um, an extremely mild person, um, very un-egotistical, uh, um, a very, very, very wonderful um, biographer, as, as, it, as it happens. So I was attracted to that. Um, I think for me, it made deep emotional sense, even though as a historian, you're not meant to jump between periods and countries. Um, you're, you're, you're basically meant to um, make your name and then sort of defend your patch, really. Um, and so doing such a, a different project was quite um, subversive in ways. But I think as a biographer, um, that's one of the, 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 the possibilities. You know, you, you can move um, in, in, in a way which if you're you know, a social historian, economic historian, etc., perhaps you are a bit more constrained by, by needing to stay within your period. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how um, John Aubrey would be a fantastic break from, as you say, the traumas of the terror and that someone so um, unegotistical as John Aubrey could be um, a useful break well a break from that could be for example your next subject um arguably um that napoleon i mean uh, and the funny thing is if i had thought about napoleon bonaparte in a garden before your book came out it would have been a, a trip a few years ago to north italy and to lake maggiore when in 1796 um on isola bella which is this this, this island uh, went to visit the house and there's this great big picture there of Bonaparte who had sort of just gone up, gone for the day or, or two and this was at a time when he when things were properly going to his head and I think I always think of this as the, the moment when he started to get a bit carried away about what he thought was possible. <laughs> so definitely um, you know they showed up him and Josephine and their entourage and they hadn't given any notice that they were coming and they just sort of appeared and said, hello, here we are, we're going to stay for a couple of days and, you know, this is a great place and uh, we're very interested in your Italian, you know, gardens and he especially liked the fact they'd got a, a theatre incorporated into one of the terraces of the garden. He's very keen on theatre, um, really keen on, on, on the grandeur of that garden and I think absolutely, I mean, when you say that was the time he sort of starts to get a bit carried away, there's a big step up there from any of the previous um you know uh gardens that i had placed him in so that going right back to corsica um paris etc as suddenly when he's there i think he is thinking oh you know actually this this is fantastic you know i i i i, I can imagine something like this you know in in in, in all my palaces that i'm gonna have Yes, exactly. You can go there now as a tourist, just as he was, really, um, but thinking very different thoughts um, uh, uh, to those he was, perhaps. So then the key question about about your Napoleon book is is where the idea came from. And I, I suppose it's a tedious one because it's the one everyone, the question everyone will be asking, but where did this idea come from? So um, the, the gardens came second to the shadows. Um, so originally what I wanted to do was to write a book that was a portrait of Napoleon, which obviously I'm very interested in doing, 
um, through the effects that he had on the people around him. So that instead of him being the great I am, you know, the big ego at the centre of the story and, and the camera has to follow wherever he's going, we could have um, a focus on a whole range of lives, some of them known to history, some of them very obscure, um, some of them very fleetingly touched by him, but that they could be assembled around him and that his sort of silhouettes or, 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 or shadows would, would emerge. But the problem with that was, what is the principle of inclusion? Because actually there are thousands of people to choose from who he influenced in that way. And, and the more obscure, the, the, the wider the cast list gets. So I needed to have a frame in which to choose who was going to be around him. And it, I really struggled. I mean, I, it's, it was tough. Um, and I kept coming back to that picture that you mentioned, the engraving that ended up as being part of the cover of my book, of this, um, you know, slightly overweight, defeated figure leaning on the spade in exile, the straw hat rather than the, the famous beacon hat. Um, and asking myself, why, why do I love this image so much? Why am I so intrigued by trying to understand what would have been in his mind at that point? What does it feel like to live that life and then to end there? And so I went back to the beginning and I thought, well, I really want to write about the garden on St. Helena, so I'm going to see, are there other gardens? And then, like magic, there were. You know, I kept finding them. And it is that thing that when you're looking for something, you know, in the archive, in, in, in the library, you are going much more likely to, to, to find it than if you're just sort of generally sampling stuff and, and reading. If, if you've got a question, if you say, well, you know, was there a, was there a garden at the centre of this? Turns out, yes, you know, uh, absolutely. And, and the gardens sort of rise and fall as his fortune rises and falls. And the most involved in the gardening he gets is when he starts going to exile. So Elba and then St. Helena, those are, those are the big sort of hands-on gardening projects. But there's many, many more and, and, and you know, hugely ambitious ones before that. He wasn't going to be doing the gardening, but he's involved in the vision. He's involved in the planning. He has opinions. He has tastes. And you do see um, a different side to him. Um, and I like to think as well, it's a more neutral approach. So one of the things I'm very proud of is um, I have had the whole range of responses to my books. And I've had real Napoleon fans say to me, oh, this is fantastic. We love this new you know, approach to him. And I've had his bitterest enemies say, oh, you know, we always knew he was a bastard and your book really, really shows that, that he was. <laughs> yes, that's good. It's like the, the BBC, uh, the British Broad, if, as long as they're being, uh, you know, criticised by both sides, then, then they know they're roughly doing the right thing and being neutral. Yeah, no, that's right. Which of the gardens in the book um, was the one that surprised you most as an inclusion you know one that you would yeah so that was the waterloo chapter because all the time i was writing the book and i went as i say i did literally go back to the beginning i knew where i wanted to end up in the garden of saint helena 
went back to the beginning. There's the, the Corsican mulberry nursery, you know, the apocryphal garden at school, um, you know, uh, the Jardin du Roy in, in Paris, Egypt, etc. And I'm all the time in the back of my head thinking this is all very well. Uh, how am I going to do Waterloo? <laughs> got to do Waterloo and how on earth is it going to fit into this framework and then I get to Waterloo and I see of course which I had seen before and reading other people's um, books but it has a new resonance for me the walled garden of the Chateau of Hougoumont and that becomes uh, a way of again sort of coming fresh to to that story for me and and sort of thinking in terms of Victor Hugo going there afterwards um the way it entered into um the sort of the mythology of of, of Waterloo the narratives that there are and also the sense those brilliant sort of parallel in that there was a formal garden at the centre of the fall of the monarchy back in 1792. The Tuileries Garden, Napoleon, still Bonaparte, obviously is there, sees the fall of the monarchy. And then we get to Waterloo and the fall of, of the final fall of, of his power takes place in that walled garden. He's not in the garden, but that is where everything ends for, for, for him. Well, the Napoleonic Quarterly podcast is looking at this great swathe of history from 1792 to 1815 and in a fairly blow-by-blow manner. And um, it's an interesting exercise in, it's just an attempted synthesis in, you know, trying to bring t- to highlight the drama of the period but i think what your book is doing is is not it's not so, so much about the drama of the period as how one reflects on it and as as is summed up in in the the image of of, of napoleon bonaparte leaning on his spade but but at the same time your sort of your subjects are living in the past present and future all at once just as we all do as humans that's right. And, and Napoleon himself, obviously, obsessed with his posterity, obsessed, went on St. Helena with writing those memoirs and projecting into the future and, and, and deriving the thing. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the sense of that, you know, somehow finding a way to um, to write about the, the, the life and the impact of the life and, and the fact that can carry beyond the present into, into, into the future. That was very important to me. So I'm clearly not going to be able to shift you off the fence one way or the other when it comes to Napoleon Bonaparte. But I don't think that's what you're interested in, really. It's more uh, the, the question of somebody who did wield a profound influence on the Europe and the world of the period and trying to understand what it was like to be that human being or, or, or explain what, the, what made up that, that particular personality. And the sort of the counterpoint to the great man of history uh, approach. So to say, look, I'm, I'm not disputing this was a hugely important life, but it was a human life. Um, it was, you know, this is one man. This, this, we have to approach it like there's a kind of, so in that sense, to sort of get behind all that afterlife and, and, and imagery and, and, and projection and to try and find a way to sort of, in a way, sort of undercut that and come back to, well, let's look at this as a lived life. You know, let, let's let's go through the story um, 
and not make it um, a whole pageant of battles and all, all the rest of it, but just find a way to, to map that arc, um, which is the most incredible. I mean, it's, it, it's an incredible story. Uh, yeah, and, and again, it's one that I think we're aware of. As soon as you read about him having piles at Waterloo, you realise that, that you know there's there's a human being there, and that, you know that, that these things do matter. But that the, the the entourage as well, just to come back to the shadows, you know whether it's Josephine um, uh, or, or or others, and those around him, the soap opera is that another reason why we find his court and uh, everything about him so interesting that he didn't exactly discourage the kind of um, dramas that might invite uh, you know a major multi-series tv show certainly not no i mean it, it was a court um and uh, two of my favorite people are this sort of double act the 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 architects percier and fontaine and the way um, they're always sort of running behind him with the plans for, you know, the new the new garden that's going to be integrated into the new palace, etc., and trying to get his attention. And and the thing, you know, when he, when they get his attention, of course, he's highly highly critical, and he's like, you know, who who planted this here? The, or you know, this this looks like an animal tent. Why have you put up this portico? You know, I, I hate it and things like. That. So you get these sort of um, almost like the uh, you know behind the camera interaction with him where where it's 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 very impromptu and um those people who are close to him um do reflect back uh in in a very genuine way i think what what it was like to actually be interacting well you've described what it felt like writing those final sentences of of the robespierre book and feeling pretty much fed up with or just who'd had enough of the terror because i, I mean, wasn't it, even I, it wasn't that i was fed up i was just horrified you know it was an absolute trauma i hope that listeners of the this podcast have got a little sense of that because you know it just seemed to end up well it, anyway yeah it, it, it was it's pretty full-on and i can see why finishing john Aubrey would be a more soothing and gentle experience in general reflecting the man so the question is how did you feel finishing the napoleon bonaparte book how, how, how did that feel compared to the others so i finished it in lockdown um i had to because it they wanted to publish it uh for the bicentenary of his death so may 21 so it had to be done by the end of may 20 um so in some respects it was a miracle for me because a lot of my teaching was cancelled i was still doing a little bit but i suddenly had this space and at the same time you know the nation became obsessed with green spaces and their gardens in the lockdown so there was sort of strange you know um uh, sympathy there go going on you know there's, there's sort of the importance of the natural world our place in the natural world at the same time as we're hugely threatened by 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 the pandemic um and uh you know co coming to the end of it obviously um you know i i felt 
I felt in it's it's not the same as coming to the end of Robespierre's life. You know, it 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 it's a life that ends in this um, you know these 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 years on Saint Helena being very thwarted, um, be, being increasingly constrained. But again, to come back to to Voltaire, um, I mean, I. I did have the you know the end of Candide in my head you know we we, we must cultivate our garden uh, so as I said do you know half the nation <laughs> but in their head as well during the pandemic and I did hear a lot of echoes um, of Candide in in some of the things Napoleon said and I know that he took the Voltaire text with him and they were very important to him so there was there was a sense of of almost sort of peace, really, in coming to rest in a specific place. It, it wasn't what he chose. It wasn't what he wanted. But actually, he had to make the best of it. And that is a very human reality, really. However grand you've been in the past or, or you know, whatever your your achievements have been, there comes that point when actually, you know, your 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 life is in a much more constrained, much much smaller space. And and that felt um very very humane to me. Well indeed, and with St Helena as the ultimate lockdown for one particular individual, I suppose. My frustration with that was I so wanted to go there and they had opened up the airport. And then when, the, do you remember when the green list first came out of where we were allowed to travel, St. Oh, Helena yes. was on it. And I was like, well, maybe I should just go. You know, perhaps this is my moment. <laughs> I think I was scared of getting stuck there if they check it off the green list. <laughs> yes, gosh, that would have been something else entirely. P- picture of you leaning on your spade. <laughs> Stuck on St. Helena. <laughs> well, Ruth, um, thank you so much for talking to me um, today. We're, we're talking in late 2021, but the paperback of um, your Napoleon book is coming out in spring of 22, which may well be just about when this episode goes out. <laughs> it might, might, might be something uh, for those of you who um, didn't manage to get hold of the hardback. But in any case, Ruth, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to these three interview episodes, which together conclude season three and, of course, the first quarter of the Napoleonic Quarterly. You can support the podcast by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts or by following the Napoleonic Quarterly on Twitter or Facebook. Or please do send through questions to napoleonicquarterly at gmail.com. Any questions, maybe any questions you like, but particularly those relating to the years we're just about to cover, i.e. 1798 and 1799, we could then incorporate those into the uh, episodes we'll be recording shortly. Bye for now.